0: Welcome to Bobby Osinski's Inner Circle. I'm Bobby Osinski, and this is a show all about music, music production, and the music business. My guest this week is the executive director of the Bob Moog Foundation, Michelle Moog Kusa. First of all, if you're a Spotify user, especially a premium user, you're not going to like this. Major record labels or artists and management can now buy ads on Spotify, and these are basically pop-up ads that say music for you. They're alerts. So it's telling you this is a song that you might like. But again, kind of pops up when you least expect it. So why is this happening? Well, this is already something that is happening and record labels are buying on Facebook and Instagram. So they feel that users aren't going to be too put out about this. Not so sure about that myself. The other thing is, Spotify isn't making any money, and it can't make any money by just adding users anymore. So it has to earn money from another source. And this is what they call a two-sided marketplace. That means they're making it from the end user, and they're also making it from the other side, from the artist record label manager. So for now, this is viewed only as a test, and it's only in the U.S. market. Ad revenue is only about 10% of the total revenue that Spotify brings in. And of course, they want that to be a lot more. They can't really do that by selling ads because, for one thing, if you're in premium tier, in other words, you're paying for it every month, you're not seeing ads. However, these record label pop-up alerts can be considered ads. If I'm paying $9.99 a month, I think I'd be a little upset with that. There's another potential reason why this is happening, though. Spotify does not have current licenses with Universal Music and Warner Brothers. And as a result, there are negotiations to renew. Now, one way that they can make this more attractive and maybe make it work better with the record labels is to say, look, we'll give you X amount of free pop-ups in order to cover some of the money that you're asking for. So we'll see how this happens. We'll see what users say, but expect to see these coming soon if you're a U.S. Spotify user. If you have any questions or comments, you can send them to the questions at bobbyowintercircle.com. Don't forget about my online courses on mixing, production, branding, and music business success at bobbyosinskycourses.com. Also, check out my free ebook and PDF downloads and mixing, production, mastering, and social media at bobbyosinski.com forward slash free hyphen resources. Now, here's something I found really interesting Gibson has lost a couple of trademarks on some of their most iconic instruments. So the company lost two trademark cases in the EU. So this is in Europe. The first, the Flying V, the trademark was denied. And the reason why? Because it has no demonstration of distinctive character. Now that I really disagree with because it's as distinctive a guitar as you'll ever find and no one has ever really copied it. What happened was Gibson never filed for a trademark until 2010. So they waited way too long. Now, that being said, Gibson holds the patents for the flying V shape and its use on non guitar items like clothing and jewelry. But the most recent ruling was the Firebird. It lost the trademark, again in the EU, for the Firebird. And the reason why? Well, the ruling was that it does not consider this to be significantly different from the normal style of electric guitars. So, in other words, it's not distinctive enough. Once again, Gibson filed for trademark protection way too late, decades after its initial release. And that was the big problem. If they would have done it on release, then they'd still have these trademarks. Now, remember, in the United States, they still have the trademarks. It's not a problem. We're talking about Europe. But because they don't have the trademark in Europe, it's going to influence what happens in the United States as well. So it should be interesting to see how they deal with this going forward, My feeling is probably nothing will be different, except they'll have more competition with those body styles. But this is only going to be in Europe, and it probably won't affect them in the United States. So if you're a guitar player, or if you're just interested in trademarks and patents, keep your eyes glued to what Gibson does in the future. My guest today is Michelle Moog Kusa, daughter of the man whose name is almost synonymous with the word synthesizer. That's Bob Moog. Michelle has been the executive director of the Bob Moog Foundation for the 12 years since its inception. She's guided the organization through the creation and growth of its hallmark educational effort, Dr. Bob's Sound School, which inspires thousands of teachers and young children every year through a 10-week experiential science and sound curriculum. Michelle also has maintained her vision for the museum, a historical and educational center that houses all the Foundation's projects and is home to the Bob Moog Archives. Its mission is to encourage people of all ages to embrace the process of scientific and creative discovery. During the interview, we spoke about growing up with the famous father, her father's early days pursuing a concert piano career, his relationship with Leon Theremin, the mission of the Bob Moog Foundation, and much more. I spoke with Michelle via phone from her office in Asheville, North Carolina. One of the things I didn't realize is your father's connection with Leon Theremin.
1: Oh yeah. And that is a very, very strong connection. I mean, he considered him his virtual mentor. He started making theremin when he was a teenager. And he absolutely fell in love with that instrument. And I think, you know, a lot of us are enchanted with it because it has such a magical interface. that You play it without touching it. But I think even that may be what attracted my dad's attention to begin with. But uh, it more became the the circuitry and what a um, relatively simple, elegant, and effective designs Therman created, and really uh, how revolutionary his instrument was, and how it paved the way for so much that came after it. He refers to Leon Therman's work as the cornerstone for what we know now as electronic music.
0: I understand the connection now and it's especially interesting i think there's the kind of like the godfather i guess of electronic music and the father of electronic music and not many people know the connection i don't think
1: yeah yeah it's, it's very very strong I mean, to the point where when you come into the museum we have a comprehensive bob oak timeline about bob's life and legacy and career, but then right across from that is um, an exhibit on Leon Theremin and the Theremin, and then a chance to play the Theremin and learn about waveforms, because we feel like those two subjects are so closely linked that once you learn about Bob, you should also be learning about his his main sources, technical and creative inspiration.
0: Growing up with a famous father, living where I live in Burbank, I have lots of friends that grew up with famous parents and it's really interesting either they get into the you know the entertainment business on some level really early or they're shielded like your dad shielded your family from that yeah the interesting thing to me is the fact that your dad was obviously aware of what was going on and what the impacts might be on your family which not every parent kind of understands i don't think
1: yeah, and I think part of that just stemmed from the fact that the fame made him really uncomfortable. You know, he was kind of an introvert to begin with, um, but he also is quoted as saying, there's an interview with him somewhere online, and they ask him what it's like to, to you know, know so many celebrities. And he simply replied, I don't embrace the notion of celebrity. Hmm. He certainly never looked at himself that way. I think that he was he was too inclusive and too much of a humanist to think of himself as superior in that way. And um, I think it's that kind of ethos that he didn't want to permeate the family. And I also think that there was a certain amount of marital discord where my mom was a little resentful or a lot resentful depending on the time of how famous my father was, but how that there were financial reward that often accompanies fame was not there. Mm. So he got lots of accolades and he was traveled a great deal and, um, but things were still often tough financially at home. So I, uh, um, that is probably another reason that he didn't talk about his work as much as he might have, because um, I think at some point my mom had had enough mm, yeah. of his of his career. Which you know, the more successful he got, the less time he spent with the family, because he was just immersed in what he was doing. You know, as often happens yeah. with with uh, highly accomplished people. So.
0: And also, with highly accomplished people, they don't care so much about the financial side as much. And it seems like your dad was like that.
1: No, he didn't. I mean, I think he liked not being destitute, you know, but he was not driven. That was not his driving force. Um You know, you... He really was into the, the process of. I'm sorry. He was really into the process of innovation and creation. That was that was his beacon.
0: Did he do anything outside of music in terms of innovation, invention?
1: No. He made um, he made a, a Geiger counter in high school. <laughs> but other than that, everything was everything was music related in some way.
0: I didn't realize that. He had a pretty deep connection with the piano, and uh, well, at least an early resume that was impressive. So it makes sense.
1: Yes, it's true. He was, as a young man, he was quite accomplished as a pianist, and he did he did play for, you know, probably eighteen years, um, right through high school, and in the summers in college. He was in college. He was in a he was in a dance band, and then he even. He played at a hotel up in the Catskills one summer. He was their pianist for their their dances at night hmm. and he did go to the manhattan school of music and um at one point they offered um him the the track one would take to become a professional accompanist um and they said you're not you're not good enough to be a professional pianist, but but we'd like to train you as a professional accompanist, and that's the point. He said, "No, thanks. Hmm. I'm going to go do electronics with my dad in the basement. I imagine that my, my grandmother shed a few tears at that moment,
0: but mm, yeah.
1: I think my dad I think my dad was really relieved.
0: You mentioned in the, the TEDx talk about you didn't quite realize the vastness of his celebrity or, or at least the, how he was recognized throughout the music community until he was sick, he was ill. And you set up the webpage and and then all of a sudden the accolades started to come in. Was there like an aha moment for you? A light bulb went on and went, wow, this is way beyond what I ever thought.
1: Well, I think it was just looking at the, at the breadth of the, of the testimonials that people were sending in. I mean, if it weren't, if it were one or two or 10 people, 15, 20 people, that would, that would have meant one thing, but there were thousands of them. And that, that's what I found quite overwhelming. I had no idea uh, that it was, it was so widespread and, um, you know, quite a deep impact, too, as far as um, affecting or sometimes transforming people's lives. It's, it's, I find it all quite, I still find it all quite astounding that one person can have that kind of effect on so many other people. I should say one person's work. I mean, he. there were lots of other people that were involved in delivering the work, and people were inspired not only by the instruments, but the music, and of course, that involved all the wonderful musicians and pioneering musicians who helped deliver that music, but um, that that it was it was those six weeks of those testimonials coming in on the Carrying Bridge site that was the light bulb moment for me. That's and that's kind of what I was referring to in the talk when I said the walls, you know, around around Bob Mo came crashing down, and all of a sudden it was absolutely undeniable. And that that was a that the was, was a paradigm shift for me to undoubtedly face that my father was also this larger-than-life iconic figure for people all over the world, and not just in a service-oriented way, like a Kim Kardashian, but in a much, much, much deeper way that changed people's lives.
0: Was that the impetus for you to begin the foundation? Yeah,
1: it was, because my dad... I don't think would have ever been naturally inclined to start a foundation in his own name. He was too humble, and I don't think we would have thought of it because of that. But when we saw uh, the inspiration that he cultivated throughout his life, um, it, it was almost as if there was no there was no choice. Uh, you don't you don't allow that kind of inspiration to just language It's something that deserves to be cultivated and um, carried forward so that people can continue to experience it and hopefully their lives are better for it. So that's when we kind of picked up the torch and decided we were going to try to carry on this powerful journey that my dad had started.
0: It's never easy to begin something like that, and I'm sure that you ran into many obstacles.
1: Yes, I have.
0: I imagine a big one is, is financial, because usually that's where everyone struggles. Did the fact that the foundation carried the Bob Moog name help or hinder you?
1: I think it's done both. I think in some cases it has helped, um, particularly if I might say with... Um, companies in the industry, particularly Spectrosonics, um, they've been a big supporter of ours and I think they, through our name, they inherently understand what we're trying to do. Our person is very perceptive that way. I think for the general public, the name has hurt us because people assume that um, we are funded by Bob Moog's enormous fortune. Of which there's not one, <laughs> mm. yeah. so we are we are uh, financially, we are quite a modest little foundation, and I think people would be surprised if they knew how small our operating budget was and how few people worked here, uh, because we are very resourceful and ambitious, and we do get a lot accomplished on um, on on the resources that we have. But yes, the funding, the funding has been difficult. We're, we're always looking to improve that.
0: Has your mission changed from when you first started? it?
1: Well, it was always to carry on the inspiration. Early on, I don't think we had a well-formed idea of how we wanted to do that. Initially, we thought we were going to put on electronic music concerts and uh, uh, sponsor scholarships at colleges. Um, some of the colleges that my dad or universities that my dad was close to. that And that was just kind of ideas that we came up with as a family in the month after my father passed away. It wasn't anything that was studied. We didn't bring in anybody else. We just felt like those were things that would resonate both with my my father and the legacy and would make an impact. But we eventually found that uh, creating scholarships at universities takes a lot of money. Um, that uh, it's not everyone wants to donate to something like that. We certainly didn't have the money ourselves, so that kind of uh, fell by the wayside. And um, the concerts also—concerts are wonderful, but they uh, take a lot of work, and it's difficult to um, to make them sustainable, especially when a one-person organization, you know, working as a volunteer. So we shifted gradually to, you know, focusing on taking care of the archives, and uh, which were in desperate need of care, and um, to educating children. We really felt like that was a, an accessible and feasible and meaningful way that we could make a very big impact. And it was also something that resonated with my father because he, he was a natural teacher. He was insatiably curious himself and loved sharing knowledge. And, um, and he, he enjoyed going into all kinds of educational settings and teaching people about synthesizers or theremins or electronic music. So it did, it did take a little while for us to settle and kind of find our place, which I don't think is too surprising as a you know, brand-new organization founded by family and colleagues who have never run a nonprofit before.
0: Mm, yeah. I want to get into Dr. Bob's Sound School in a little bit, but first of all, you, you mentioned the archives. Tell me about the archives.
1: Um, the Bob Moak Foundation Archives is a... Um, collection um, of materials that number in about about ten thousand items, including photographs, um, about three thousand schematics, uh, desktop notebooks, schemat- schematic notebooks, um, vintage catalogs, um, a few prototypes, a lot of hardware. Um, so it's a it's a breadth of material that we have that we are projecting and preserving and sharing. Um, And some of that is now in the museum. Mm. We've also um, shared some of it with other museums and with researchers, and that's something we aim to continue to do.
0: It sounds like he kept everything.
1: He did keep a lot, yes. He did, thank goodness. It wasn't all organized, but he kept it, and I think that's what's really important.
0: So now going to Dr. Bob's Sound School. Can you tell me about that?
1: Yeah, I'd love to. That is well, Dr. Bob's Sound School is our hallmark educational project. Uh, it's a 10 week standardized experiential curriculum that teaches second graders, those are seven year olds, about the science of sound through music and technology. So right now we're teaching about 3,000 kids a year. What we do is we train second grade teachers who themselves may not have a deep understanding of sound, but we train them, and then they teach the kids. And our goal through each activity, as I said, is ten weeks long, so it's ten activities, is that the kids have a multi-sensory experience with every single activity so that they are hopefully hearing, seeing, and somehow touching sound Hmm. with each activity. And um, we've been thrilled because the curriculum that we've developed uh, has been very successful and has gotten accolades from the kids and the teachers and the parents and the administrators. So we're very proud of that. And right now we're delivering it in our local area, but we are hoping to expand it nationwide. There's um, one part of it that we need to um, do some special development on to be able to scale it. And so that's the part we're working on right now.
0: Do you know about the TIME organization? I do. Oh, okay. It just seems like there'd be some synergy with them.
1: Yeah, we've we were at one-time conference and we presented Dr. Bob's Sound School, but we only had like five people attend. We So we had a big ballroom and five people attended, and across the hallway there was a, a session on how to teach kids the recorder, and that was full. Hmm. And that was a pretty powerful lesson for us that... Um, we weren't directly music-related enough. We are really a science education um, initiative. So, of course, you know, related to music and, and all about sound, but it, is, it comes from a science. So the music educator's uh, angle didn't, didn't seem to have as much synergy as we'd hoped. We uh, we enjoy collaborating with other organizations and, you know, getting more exposure through them or being able to reach new audiences for sure.
0: You know, I want to go back a little bit. You were never involved with Moog Music at all, were you?
1: No. No, um, when my father passed away, uh, his shares of the company were paid out and um, his business partner um, then became the sole owner of the company.
0: It's employee owed now, right? Yes. Yeah, I'm just curious, was that ever on the table that you'd be involved?
1: No. No, no one from the family has ever been directly involved in the business.
0: For better or for worse, I'm sure. The reason why I ask is sometimes it's sort of expected that someone from the family would be directly involved in the company in one way or another. But on the other hand, it's not uncommon for children of a founder of a company to not want to have anything to do with it. So that, you know, that's not surprising either.
1: Yeah. I, I, I don't think that that was part of the vision of the new owner.
0: Hmm. All that being said, then the foundation is rolling along and you seem to be doing a wonderful job with Dr. Bob's Sound School. I love the fact that it's aimed at second graders, very influential time in their lives since so i Great time to actually expose them to this. How did you decide on, on that age?
1: That is where sound is first introduced into the curriculum on a state and national level. And we felt strongly that we wanted to be able to teach kids at a very foundational level. We wanted to get them before hopefully they were too attached to their iPhone's um, so that by the time they were attached to their iPhones or their iPads or whatever it was, that they and you know they can just press on an icon and have an amazing synthesizer at their fingertips. When you know before that time happened, we wanted to be able to provide them with some foundational uh, knowledge and experience, so that and when they did when they did experience synthesis uh, digitally, that that they they had a deeper understanding of what they were, what they were hearing, and what they were doing, and what the possibilities were.
0: Is that all done out of Asheville? So, in other words, they attend the classes in Asheville.
1: Yes, I mean they—they, they, it's their teachers who teach them in their second grade classrooms. So it's part of their weekly curriculum for ten weeks in the winter and spring of each year.
0: So the teachers. Or in Nashville, and you're a teacher of teachers, essentially.
1: Yes, that's right. We we partner with school districts, and then we we train the school districts' teachers.
0: They also supply the materials, I suppose, because if they're touching things as well, there must be you know some materials that are involved in that. I would think. Yes.
1: Yes. Each school gets a bin of materials that includes a theremin.
0: <laughs> I love it.
1: Yep. We teach little kids about waveforms, so there are lots of kids in the western North Carolina who can look at a waveform and tell you whether it's high-pitch or low-pitch, or whether it's loud or soft. They might be able to tell you a few other things about it, but they can at least tell you that. Mm-hmm. And we teach them that through the theremin.
0: Oh, very cool. We
1: hook theremins up, we, we th- hook theremins up to oscilloscopes.
0: Very cool. That's excellent. Now, tell me about the museum.
1: Well, the the museum has always been a vision of ours. Um, and essentially what it is is the convergence of our other two projects, the educational initiative and the archive preservation efforts that um, we've concentrated on over the past 13 years. It's those two things coming together. So it's a... I'm a highly experiential immersive facility that brings Bob's legacy alive for people of all ages and also all walks of life this is not you know not we really felt strongly that it wasn't it wasn't to be just a museum for synth geeks but you know to appeal to um people who could be inspired just through the process of invention, through a story um, about creativity and persistence, and fun. People have a chance to play the theremin, play synthesizers, um, uh, stand in front of an immersive dome and learn how electricity turns into sound when it travels through a circuit board, and then interact with that circuit board themselves. Um, there's a recreation of Bob's workbench, and um, there's also a whole timeline of synthesis um, that I'm very proud of that features 34 different developments in synthesis over a 100-year period. And the the point of that was not only the obvious, which is to educate people about the, the, the history of own sense of where his place was, on a, on a continuum um a lot of people can you know kind of put him up on a pedestal but he felt that you know if he deserved to be up on a pedestal a lot of other people deserve to be up there with him so uh the moog instruments that we've decided to feature in that timeline are right in the middle and there are many many instruments that came before that um led up to uh the development, those developments, and there are many actors that have, you know, t- taken uh, electronic music and synthesis in their own uh, special direction. So um, that timeline and the Bob Moog timeline have all these beautiful photos on the wall, so that people can experience uh, the progression. Um, visually, but we also have these really beautiful touchscreen kiosks that um, people can delve much deeper into over 1,000 pieces of archival material between the two timelines to explore more deeply um, the subject at hand. And, then, you know, people can choose to kind of explore whatever they like. Uh, it takes some people 20 minutes to a half an hour to go through the museum. It's um, kind of a modest. Size facility at this point, um, but we've had people spend two, three, and four hours in the museum as well. There's there's just that much material to to be shared. So we're really really very proud of it. There's also an exhibit on uh, the fundamentals of synthesis. Uh, guided tour through waveforms and voltage control, oscillators, filters, envelopes mixers, amps, um, and people can delve as deeply as they want to into that as well. And that is all interactive, and uh, we've had a lot of people really enjoy it and tell us that they were very intimidated by synthesis. But after playing around with that exhibit, they understood a lot more and felt less intimidated, uh, which makes us feel like we've accomplished our mission right there. So um, it's, it's really... Quite a meaningful experience for people, and the kind of um, the pinnacle of that experience right now is that we have the prototype Moog synthesizer from 1964 on exhibit. It is on loan to the Moog Museum from the Henry Ford Museum in Dearborn, Michigan. Herb Deutsch donated it to the Henry Ford in 1982, and we've been able to get it on loan. It's at the with us at the Moog Museum through May 23rd. Of- uh, next year, which will be the one-year anniversary of the museum. So um, that is also a very, very very special piece to us because it's really where that is the pivotal piece where music changed.
2: Yeah.
0: This sounds wonderful. I'd love to see it myself.
1: Well, I hope you get to come visit sometime.
0: Yeah, yeah. Well, I hear the the Asheville music scene is notorious. It's supposed to be very, very vivid right now, so vibrant is the word I'm looking for.
1: Yes, it is indeed. For such a small city, I mean, we're only a city of about 130,000, but there's a lot of music happening every single night.
0: Maybe someday. Last question, Michelle. What's the best piece of business advice that maybe someone imparted to you or maybe you learned along the way?
1: Well, I'm going to say two things. First, uh, one of the businessmen who I respect the most said, business is the art of making things work. And I've I've always carried that with me. But if I had to say one, you know, the one thing that's really impacted my work the most, it would be the example that my father set in that he never gave up. And that would be the biggest piece of advice that I could ever give to anybody, is don't give up. Because when you can push through the challenges, uh, that's when the magic happens, and then there are these bursts of very important forward motion that you can build on.
2: Well,
0: your father certainly exemplified that.
1: Yes, he did. And I think about him a lot, and I think that That has helped me stick with it, because it hasn't always been easy.
0: You can find out more about Michelle and the Bob Moog Foundation at MoogFoundation.org. It's all one word, MoogFoundation.org. Thanks for listening and being in my inner circle. Remember, if you have any questions or comments, send them to questions at BobbyOInnerCircle.com. To listen to other episodes of Bobby Osinski's Inner Circle, go to BobbyOsinski.com and select the podcast tab or... Go to BobbyOwnerCircle.com or find it on iTunes, Stitcher, MixCloud, Google Play, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Deezer, TuneIn Radio, Radio Public, and Podbean. At BobbyOwnerCircle.com and BobbyOwnerCircle.com, you'll find a sign-up form for my newsletter and for alerts to new podcasts. This is Bobby Osinski. I will see you next time.